Evening, everyone. Shall we pray together? Father, we um, approach your word this evening with awe and reverence. We know that we cannot understand it except through your enabling. And so we ask for that tonight. Please guard us from error. Please guard us against seeing things that we want to see, but rather seeing the truth that you have given us. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to uh, take this opportunity again to thank the elders for allowing me to uh, preach tonight. It is always a, a great honor and privilege when I get the chance to do so. Um, thank you to Brahm, who stepped in for me uh, last week. Um, and of course, thank you to Billy for posing for the background picture of the sermon slide. <laughs> As it turns out, I have a lot to learn from other people at the gym. For example, we all know how important it is to warm up before exercising, but I've never seen anyone take it ser so seriously that she decided to knit a jersey before exercising. We also know that motivation is extremely important at the gym, like this gentleman keeping himself motivated with pizza. This lady was so humiliated at last year's potato sack race that she's taking her training seriously by only using one of the pedals at the elliptical machine. And this gentleman has decided to not let his fear of water get in the way of his dream of becoming an Olympic swimmer. Tonight we're going to be looking not at bodybuilding that happens at the gym, but rather the bodybuilding that happens at a church. Now last time I preached, we looked at the first six verses of chapter four and saw our common calling for worthy walking. So tonight I want to look at chapter 4, verses 7 to 16, bodybuilding for a worthy walking. And we'll be looking at, firstly, the equipment for bodybuilding, the goal of bodybuilding, and then Jesus, the bodybuilder. So let's read our passage together, Ephesians 4, verse 7 to 16. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, uh, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may, longer, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So, firstly, the equipment for bodybuilding. We're going to start by looking at, uh, looking in this passage from verses 11 onwards, 
and then come back to verses 7 to 10. I hope this makes more sense this way. So it's reading from verse 11. And he, being Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up, uh, for, for building up the body of Christ. So here we have a bunch of roles, a bunch of offices that he, being Jesus, has given to the church corporately in order to achieve something. He has identified a problem, a deficiency in the church, and he's going to rectify this. And in order to do this, he creates these offices, these job titles. The issue is this. The saints are not, according to verse 12, equipped for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. This is the problem. The saints are not equipped. What does this look like? Well, let's take a quick peek at verse 13 and 14 and see what this looks like. We're going to have a look at these verses in more detail in a second, in our second point. So allow yourself only the briefest peek at these verses, and we'll come back to them in a second, trust me. So being ill-equipped means, verse 13, not having the unity of one faith and knowledge of the Son of God. And verse 14, being tossed around by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. So knowledge and doctrine. This is what the saints are lacking. This is what makes them unable to do the work of ministry. This is what is missing, and, that, and this is what these offices, these job titles, are there to rectify. So let's look at each one of these now. The first role of apostles and prophets is to establish the foundations for the new church. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 describes the church as being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That's the first role of the, of the apostles and prophets. And they do this through their second role, which is that they receive direct revelation from God and then give that revelation to the people. They receive new revelation, new doctrine, new truth from God directly and then pass it on to the people. In talking about his own insight into the mystery of Christ, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 5, he says that this was not made known to the sons of men in other, generation, in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Remember that Paul is writing this letter at a time without the New Testament as we have it today. But this church, the Ephesian church, doesn't have this New Testament as we have it, so how does God instruct his church on doctrine? He does this through the apostles and through the prophets. The word apostle comes straight from the original Greek, apostolos, which means sent one, someone sent on a mission, which um, in this case means they have been directly sent by Christ. This title is then applied very narrowly. It is applied only to the 12 apostles, along with Matthias, who replaced Judas, and Paul. Then we have the prophets. What did the prophets do? The prophets also spoke direct revelation from God or sometimes further explained the revelation that had been revealed by the apostles. We know, all the, uh, we know many great prophets of the Old Testament, men like Moses and Elijah and Ezekiel. And the book of Acts also identifies a number of other people as prophets. For example, Barnabas, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, uh, Simeon, Niger. Um, that's from Acts 13. And it's probably correct to say that Paul and Peter themselves were also prophets. 
So the apostles and prophets provided the foundation of doctrine. But now that we have this foundation, what do we need now? We need saints. Now that we have this revelation of the gospel from the apostles and the prophets, the next step is for that message to be spread out to those who don't believe it. We need this doctrine now to be proclaimed. So the next office given is that of evangelists. Evangelists proclaim the gospel, the good news of Christ to those who don't believe it. And of course, we all know that it is the responsibility of all of us to spread the gospel. But we also know that some are clearly very gifted in this way, that they're, uh, in, in the way they're able to present the truth of the Bible to those who have never heard it before. We can think of missionaries that our church supports as being examples of this. So those apostles, prophets, and evangelists, and now that we have these newly minted saints, we realize that they are, in the words of verse 14, children. There is nothing wrong with this. There's nothing wrong with being a child. <clears throat> the trouble is staying a child. The shepherds and teachers have been given to equip the church, to equip these saints, so that they are no longer children, but rather are firm and steady and are not tossed about believing all kinds of false doctrine. You see, what makes them children is their ignorance about the truth of the gospel as it was received by the apostles and prophets and as it was initially explained by the evangelists. And now it's the job of the shepherds and teachers to teach them this truth in all its fullness and color. Now this is the role that we are perhaps most familiar with in today's church. Individuals in these roles are described interchangeably in the New Testament with several, several different names and roles. So the Greek word for shepherd is poimen, which is sometimes translated as pastor. And this, in fact, informs the role of what a pastor is. As a shepherd of sheep cares for and guards his flock, so a pastor of a church is to care for and guard the members of his congregation. Another word that is used is the word episkopos, which is translated as bishop or overseer, someone whose duty it is to make sure that something is done right. And then there's also the word presbyteros, which is translated as elder, someone who is uh, senior either in terms of age or in terms of rank. Now, if you're worried that we might be using these three terms interchangeably, don't worry, we're supposed to. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, uh, he exhorts um, the elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, using those exact words that we just spoke of. In other words, elders are to shepherd and exercise oversight. And in Acts 20, verse 28, Paul tells the elders to shepherd the church of which they have become or have been made overseers. So while I said a minute ago that these are different roles, these are actually just different aspects of the same office. Shepherds are teachers, are elders, are overseers. And back to our passage, verse 11 of Ephesians 4, I think there is another point in the grouping of these two offices together. Verse 11, the shepherds and teachers. And that is because people are shepherded by teaching. 
So now that we have these officers, let's look at what they are equipping us to do. Verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So firstly, the work of ministry or works of service. These are all the many things that we do to serve one another. And there is a lot of freedom in this. A Christian can never say that they are not gifted enough to serve. If God wants you to serve in a particular way, he will give you the gifts required to serve in that particular way. He is not going to be held back by your inability. That's why I teach Sunday school and not play in the band. You cannot say that you are so devoid of gifting that you cannot possibly serve in any way in the church other than warming the seat beneath you. Don't worry about your gift. Find a need within the church and fill it. So that was the works of ministry. And secondly, building up the body of Christ. The body of Christ is a phrase used to refer to the church. So you can look at Ephesians 5.23, where Paul says that Christ is the head of the church, his body. And Colossians 1.24, where he says that he is suffering for the sake of Christ's body that is the church. So the church, the collection of all believers, is pictured here as the body of Christ. What an amazing, what an amazing title. Again, we can look at the roles of these gifted individuals to look at what this building up might be. It is growth in terms of numbers, people being brought into the church through evangelism, and it is also growth in terms of maturity, people growing deeper in their love of God and their understanding of his love for them. Two quick points of application before we move on from verses 11 and 12. Firstly, we need to allow this understanding of the roles that God has designed affect the way in which we view them and the people who are filling these roles. Pastors are not politicians running for office. They are not chairman of a company in which we hold stock. They are not in office because they are popular or hold views that please us or have great plans or strategies. They are shepherds whom God has given the authority to oversee the local church and the responsibility to teach and care for its members. And then secondly, it is true that God has raised up and gifted individuals for these offices. But notice what the passage doesn't say. It doesn't say he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers in order to do the work of ministry. No. It is for these officers to equip us, the saints, uh, in order to do uh, the work of ministry. It is not the responsibility of pastors, elders, and teachers to do it. Plainly, it is the saints being there to serve one another. It is not the job of elders to meet every need in the church, but rather to equip the congregation to meet its own needs. And we're going to revisit this idea when we get to verse 16. So that was our first point. Let's move on to our second point, the goal of bodybuilding, verses 13 to 16. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children 
tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working perfect, uh, properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So here we have the goal, or the end result, of this equipping. Verse 11 and 12 have told us that God has given us people to equip us for ministry and building up the body. And so now verse 13 is then the goal of this equipping. And that is unity of the faith and unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. And I would ask you to cast your minds back, if you are able to, to the last time that I preached. And if you are not, at least cast your eyes back a little further back in our passage to look at verse 3 of chapter 4, where Paul emphasizes the unity of the Spirit, and he roots our own unity in the singularity of our faith. Paul urged us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, and reminded us that there is one body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. So in verses 1 to 6, Paul is talking about a unity that is objective, and it is already complete, it is achieved for us, and we don't have to work for it. But now, um, in our verses that we're looking at tonight, Paul talks about a unity that is subjective, that is progressively achieved, um, and a unity that we must strive for. So let's look at the unity of the faith and unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, in one sense, these two ideas are very close, faith and knowledge of the Son of God. So we could just leave it there and treat them as one concept, but I think there is a richness if we dive into the distinction between the two. Starting with knowledge, this is truth that is understood or comprehended. The unity of our, of our knowledge is that we would be unified in our doctrine. But then there is also faith or belief And this is how we respond to that truth, how it moves us, how we have or perhaps haven't embraced it. So there is one goal, which is that we would be unified in the things we believe. Now perhaps we can see why this goal is progressively achieved. Perhaps we'll get there during the millennium. And there is another goal, which is that we will all embrace and love the things of God equally too. And to this end, we are given two contrasting images, the negative image of a child and the positive image of a mature man. So the first image of verse 14, no longer being children. What's the issue with being a child? Doesn't Jesus say in Matthew 18, unless we become like children, we won't enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, the difference is this, that Jesus says we should be like children in their willingness to trust and submit to their parents. We should have the same unquestioning faith in God as what children have in their parents. Paul, however, says that children are also undiscerning and therefore vulnerable to fall for wrong teaching. They are gullible and they are easily influenced. No offense to any children tonight. He says that they are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. 
The goal of God in giving us teachers is that we no longer fall for false teachers. Paul in 1 Corinthians 14.20 says that we should not be children in our thinking. That is the point of the teachers that God gives the church. Now, we are naive to think that without God's help, we would be invulnerable to the forces that in this world that want to carry us away, the forces that want to influence us. We are also naive to think um, that there are neutral forces in this world, that there are neutral influences. Recall from our studies in James about wisdom, that there is no neutral wisdom. There is godly wisdom, and there is demonic wisdom. So that's the negative image of no longer being a child. The positive image is the goal we reach, verse 13, mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Also, jump down to verse 15, where Paul gives a contrast of um, children being tossed around. It says, rather speaking the truth in love, um, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. As individuals, God's desire is for us to grow and mature. It is God's desire that we take on more and more of the characteristics of Christ and reject more and more the sinful desires and practices of our own hearts. Grow up in every way into Christ. Also, look for a moment at verse 15, speaking the truth in love, and how this is held up against being carried away by deceitful schemes. Truth versus deceit. Again, this is why God has given us teachers, to live in truth and not be fooled by deceit. We need to embrace the idea that it is loving to speak truth to someone. Now, this might mean teaching someone something knew that they didn't know about God. But it might also be correcting them of something that they believed wrongly. And it might also mean correcting someone's behavior. We are called upon as fellow Christians in the body to call out sin in one another. Often we allow ourselves to fall victim of a false trap which says that we have to give a rebuke in a loving way. Now that is very true. But the trap is that if we can't find a living way of rebuking, then that means that we can't rebuke the person at all. Or on the flip side, when someone does rebuke us, we try to turn the tables on them and accuse them of not being loving enough in how they've just rebuked us. Let's be clear on this. There might be more loving ways and less loving ways of rebuking someone. There might be more loving ways and less loving ways of speaking the truth, but there are no loving ways to speak lies. Speaking the truth is itself a way of showing love. And there's one final point I want to make from these verses, and I want to look at it, and it might be a little bit tricky to see because this is a rather complex sentence, and I didn't see it until I read multiple times and then even then needed explained to me by someone else. And in order to do this, I'm going to remove some of the parenthetical phrases. Don't worry, I'm going to put them straight back afterwards. I'm not removing them from the Bible. 
So from verse 15, we can remove the descriptive clause about how we grow up, speaking the truth in love. We then have two phrases about the body, one descriptive, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, and then one conditional, when each part is working properly. So I'm going to remove those phrases, and the rest of the sentence, which is then connected grammatically to Christ, we cut all this out. The sentence now reads, rather, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. So we can ask, how is the body of Christ growing? What is causing the body to grow? Now, there are two parts to this answer. Literally, whom the whole body makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. So, through its teaching, and its correcting, and its speaking truth in love, the body, the church itself, builds the church up. But the second part of this is what comes before this. How does this happen? How does the body build itself? From its head, from Christ. Christ from whom the whole body makes the body grow. So Christ is the ultimate cause of the growth. And we'll look at this more in our third point. Critically, Christ is the one who gets the credit for the work that the body is doing. But at the same time, the body is not passive. The body is doing this growth. The body is active. It is making itself grow. There is a direct parallel here with what Paul tells the Philippian church to do as individuals in their own sanctification. He tells them, Philippians 2, um, verse 12 and 13, says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for... It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the instruction in Philippians is for us to work. We must work out our salvation. And yet the reason we can and must do this is because it is God who works in us. We work, but God gives the growth and ultimately the credit and glory for that growth. So again, when we work out our salvation, when we grow as Christians, God, uh, Christ is the ultimate cause of that growth. Christ is the one who gets the credit for our work, but at the same time, we are not passive. We are active in that growth. Now, before I am uh, tackled by one of the elders, whose job it is to protect you from false teaching, let me add in those phrases that we omitted earlier joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. This verse reminds us of two things. Firstly, that as a body, we are not all the same. We are different, and therefore, we need holding together. That is where the joints come in. We need these joints to hold the individual parts of the body together. And secondly, these joints are given to us. The body has been equipped by God, with these joints. So that's the first phrase that we took out. And the second phrase that we took out, when each part is working properly. This gives us a condition, when. Uh, this gives us a condition for when the body uh, makes itself grow. Because growth in the body as a whole 
requires the individual parts, the individual Christians themselves, to be seeking personal spiritual growth. Lastly, our third point, Jesus, the bodybuilder. I want to look at what makes all this possible. How are verses 11 to 16, what we've just been looking at, how are these even possible? What gives Jesus the right to claim us as his body? What gives him the right to give us the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers that grow the body? And the answer to this is found in the first three verses of our passage that we skipped over initially. So reading from verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He also descended, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now starting in verse 7, the but that it starts with there uh, is just there, I think, to contrast with the theme of verses 1 and 6, which is that of corporate oneness, because now Paul is talking about each of us as individuals. He says, each one of us. He was talking about us as a group, and now he emphasizes us as individuals. But then in verse 8, Paul's mind uh, seems to go to a parallel thought, a bit of a tangent, I think. I think he's triggered by the mention of gifts, much like a three-year-old on their birthday. The mention of gifts is quite distracting for Paul. Paul recalls a verse from Psalm 68, which is a psalm celebrating a victory that Israel had over another nation. When a nation won a victory, the triumphant king would return with whatever they were able to plunder, their spoils, uh, and they would distribute them to the king's subjects. And the king would also return with captives from the enemy, but also his own soldiers whom he was able to free from enemy captivity. Now we know that Jesus came down to earth, becomes a man, lives perfectly, dies sacrificially, and rises triumphantly. And in this victory, he has won captives, that is, uh, those whom he has saved, Christians. So the parallel with the psalm is that the rescued captives are redeemed Christians. But there is another parallel, which is this. That same triumphant Jesus gives his church gifts in the same way the triumphant king would give his subjects the spoils of war. The gifts that Jesus won for us at the cross are the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers that he then gives to the church, which is what we have spent uh, the first part of tonight looking at. So these are the gifts that Jesus won at the cross. Paul then dives into a slightly confusing parenthetical discussing ascending and descending, and I'm afraid I would need much more time and you would need a much better preacher in order to get to this into any further detail. But the point is this. Jesus becomes a man, lives a perfect life, dies on our behalf. This act therefore qualifies him to be praised, and we know from the book of Revelation that this is the act for which Jesus is praised and is the subject of his glorification. But it is also what gives him the right to claim us as his body 
and gives them the right to give gifts uh, to that body. We know that at the cross, Jesus paid for the grace by which we are saved. And if you are not trusting in Jesus for your salvation, then you are not recipients of that grace. And you will need to face God yourself one day. At the cross, Jesus paid for the grace by which we are saved, but he also bought the grace by which he is building his church, by which he is growing his church, by which he is building his body. In order to do this, he gives his church gifts bought by his blood. These gifts are the apostles and prophets whom we learn from whenever we read the Bible. They are the evangelists who proclaim the gospel to those who don't believe. And they are the shepherds and teachers who faithfully teach their congregations, care for their needs, and guard them from attack. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for, the blessing, for blessing the church with apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. We ask you that you would bless their ministry and through their ministry that you would build your body, the church. We thank you for the price Jesus paid to make this possible. Amen.